0: This is an extended edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed.
1: Shadow took a quarter from his pocket, tails up. He flicked it up in the air, knocking it against his finger as it left his hand, giving it a wobble as if it were turning, caught it, slapped it down on the back of his hand. Call, he said. Why? asked Wednesday. I don't want to work for anyone with worse luck than me call.
0: You know that voice. It's George Guedel reading Neil Gaiman's American Gods. George Guedel is one of the reasons audiobooks have blossomed over the years. He's narrated over 1700, ranging from Louis L'Amour to Dostoevsky, from Wally Lamb to Neil Gaiman. George is equally at home in fantasy, mystery, classics, memoir. There's nothing the man can't read wonderfully, and he has the awards to prove it. He's won multiple audio awards, earphone awards. He received the 2015 Audio Publishers Association Lifetime Achievement Award. And of course, he's one of Audiophile Magazine's Golden Voices. But for me, I'll always be grateful to him as one of the narrators who opened up the world of audiobooks for me. So I jumped at the opportunity to speak with George Gwydell. So sit back, relax, and listen to a master talk about his craft. Here's our conversation. George, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to talk when I know how busy you are. So I I really do appreciate that. There's always time
1: for self-aggrandizement.
0: Well, good. I'm I'm
1: glad you see it that way.
0: (laughs) I actually want to go back, 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 back. What drew you to the wild and wacky world of audiobooks?
1: <laughs> I was doing plays in the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven. And when was this? And it was uh, this was I don't remember dates. I was just in about. No, the covered wagons had gone away. They weren't there. Oh, okay. In the, in the middle sixties, okay. I would say.
0: So there were taxicabs.
1: <laughs> there were taxi cabs, yes, yes. And uh, there was an actor there, Frank Muller, who would leave after rehearsals and never smooth around with the guys. And I said, where are you going? He said, um, I, I record books. And I said, well, tell me about it. So the next day he told me about it. This is for talking books in New York, for talking for the Foundation for the Blind. Uh, in those days, I did my little reels of tape, five-minute auditions on each reel. They sent it to the American Foundation for the Blind. And never got an answer. And so, well, you know, six months, I do the follow up letter and the follow up phone call. And, and for about two years, I kept doing that and never a word back. And at some point, I took over the role in Chapter Two on Broadway, Neil Simon's play. And this guy came backstage and said, Gee, Mr. Goodell, you, you sound pretty good. How would you like to read a book? And that's the guy I've been sending my tapes to for two years. Oh, same guy. Nice. So I, one hand rose up. To hit him, and the other hand shook his hand and said, I'd love to. So that started me in something that I had no idea, no idea at all, how phenomenal an experience it was going to be. This was a gig between plays. And you know, I did it, got my check, went home, and then they called me again. And I started to work for him. and they gave me a lot of westerns for some reason. And that was for a couple of years I did that, doing shows off Broadway, Broadway, and then recorded books. Coming along, and they were having auditions for a series by Tony Hillerman, a kind of southwestern Navajo yeah. mystery series. Wonderful writer. Uh, Yo, know, he was terrific. And um, I auditioned for it, and being from New Jersey and knowing nothing about the southwest, I got the part.
0: <laughs>
1: Here's George reading an early Tony Hillerman.
0: It's The Blessing Way, and it's the book that introduces the character of Officer Joe Leaphorn.
1: Then he saw it again and promptly lost it, where the track wound to the west of Natani Tso, the great flat-topped lava butte which dominated the north end of the valley. Almost five minutes passed before he saw the dust again. Ho! Oh, horseman said, and relaxed. The truck had turned toward tall poles. It would be the army people who watched the radar place. He moved away from the tree, trotting now. He was hungry, and there was a porcupine to singe, clean, and roast before he would eat. So, that started me in recorded books. They gave me nothing but westerns, and I did the Tony Hilliman things and a lot of Louis L'Amour and stuff like that, and I said to the guy there, you know, I can do other things too. And um, they charged me some other stuff, and recorded books, little by little, started feeding me on a steady basis. So that at one point, uh, there was a choice of a book or an off-Broadway production, and I chose the book because it interested me, and, and it was what I was doing. It, was, it, it appealed to me. And finally, it came to the point where recorded books was really doing it on a continuous basis, and I said, look, I'll guarantee you a number of hours a year. You guarantee me a, a check through the years. And that's how it worked, and so... I'm coming on my 1700th and something book this year, and just went on, and and after a time, while I was at Recorded Books, the studio got a call from a library in Summit, New Jersey, asking if they had any narrators who did talks to libraries, and of course we didn't, and the studio manager, Claudia Howard, came up to me and said, uh, would you like to talk to a library? And I said, what does that mean? He said, well, they have a library, they want to hear an audiobook narrator. And I mentioned, out of the blue, a, a fee. And, well, if they pay me this, I'll come. And they said, yes, come. And I went to this little library in Summit, and it was packed. The room had about 230 people, 250 people. And they all knew me. They all knew who I was, the voice. And it just shocked me. It was, it was such a, a, a realization of this is not just entertainment. This is something that really is hitting deep into people. We are really wired primarily to hear something, to hear a story. From the days of cavemen through now, we listen to stories, we have stories in our head, and I realized that this has a future. So I then developed this program, uh, the Art and Artifice of Audiobook Narration. I've been touring libraries for the last several years all around the country. And it's an amazing experience. I cannot tell you how humbling it is and what a responsibility it gives me, a sense of that I'm doing things for people that they really appreciate. Not just entertaining them, but I'm giving them some vicarious experience, helping them through their lives. There are people that call me and say, thank you for this and thank you for that because they're either sick or they were lonely or depressed or they had problems and issues, but. Hearing me talk to them, as any good narrator would do, just helps them get through the day. So it, it grew and grew until here I am now. I'm, I'm just 173 years old and I'm still talking. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. Well, I, I want to go back just a little bit. And before you went out and started meeting people and, and really realized the impact that your work was having on mm-hmm. people in a very uh, fundamental way, What was it that felt right to you about narrating
1: audiobooks? (laughs) It's funny that you ask because I guess what it really boils down to is that I'm playing all the parts and I'm directing it, Uh even though my engineer helps me, but I'm doing it as it goes along. And through it all, through these umpteen years... I hear my mother saying to me, Georgie, you never pick up a book. What are you going to do? You've got to read. I never read until I was out of college and into the theater and reading plays and reading and seeing how important words are. Wow. Words. I just spoke to a conference of writers. It's called Pen Writers Conference. They are people who've written books and who like to write books, and they're all interested in power of the word. And there I was not in front of librarians, but in front of people who create books. And I realize that the word becomes very important. Ursula Le Guin, a writer that I really enjoyed, wrote about sculptors and painters deal with what cannot be said in words by painting and sculpting, but people who deal in fiction, artists who are, who are writers, deal with what cannot be said in words in words. And that was very important to me because words then become the gates to people's inner lives, and inner fears, inner thoughts. And the better the words, the easier it is for me to get through that gate into those people and hitting important inner truths about themselves. Don't forget, these are imagined truths that we listen to. These are, are books that are in writer's imaginations, whether they be funny Or dramatic or both they exist in a world of imagination and if I can take that world of imagination and give it an immediacy by speaking it that's an amazing blessing for me to be able to do
0: I would have to disagree just for one second though go ahead because I think that even if it comes out of the imagination of an author it's not factual, but there has to have truth to it, or it's just a oh, of waste course. of time. But it's, a, but it's an imagined yeah, truth. Yeah, an imagined truth. That imagined truth, truth has, has to be there. so
1: yeah. real. You're right, because ultimately it's me making that true in myself in order to broadcast it and get it into the listener's ear. And through that process, after having gone through Limzab and Crime and Punishment and Don Quixote and other Dostoevsky and other classics and... Marcel Proust. You can't but find out about yourself in these books because you're feeding other people truths that are going through your sense of what is truth. So it's, it's dawning on yourself as it's dawning on the people listening. I tried to read Don Quixote about three or four times in my life, never could get through it. But performing it, my God, what a difference. When you enter into that imagined truth as if it's true, it becomes true for you.
0: <laughs> well, I understand that completely. And, and your Don Quixote is brilliant. It, it's oh, thank wonderful. You. Thank you. I actually gave it to a friend of mine who loves Don Quixote, and I said, you really oh, need to boy. listen to this. <laughs> it's
1: a wonderful translation.
0: Edith Grossman is the translator.
1: Yes. And I had a great engineer who helped me through it. She was fluent in Spanish, and she had the Spanish copy and the English copy in front of her. And the translation was just... So amazingly right on in terms of the dialect and the class difference between Pancha and Quixote. It the exact same intonation and the exact same scent of, of what the intent of the author was is there. And so it allowed me to do it. It allowed me to get into that. And boy, it was true to me. Reliable conjecture seems to indicate that his name was Kejana. But this does not matter very much to our story. In its telling, there is absolutely no deviation from the truth. And so let it be said that this aforementioned gentleman spent his times of leisure, which meant most of the year, reading books of chivalry with so much devotion and enthusiasm that he forgot almost completely about the hunt and even about the administration of his estate. So when died, a little bit of me died with him. It's it's inevitable, and you know what it's like. Although it was imagined, but it was there. Exactly.
0: Tell me how you prepare for a book. Do you mark it up? Do you read it once? Do you read it more than once? Um, how do you go it depends through Depends on
1: the book. I don't read it at all, unless it's a classic, like the ones where you mentioned, where you have to read it. The first thing I have to know is, what can't I pronounce? So I usually scan the book uh, for words, foreign places, names, and luckily at Recorded Books, we have a guy who speaks many languages and gives me a sheet of phonetically written pronunciations that I can follow as I read the book. You read the book and there are only about two or three major characters that you can't fool around with vocally. They are the real people and not peripheral. It's the peripheral people that you can do background colors for. In the library shows that I do, I call them vocal portraits. A painter uses colors and a palette to draw a certain scene or a person that gives you a feeling. And to my mind, a narrator does the same thing, only his brush is his voice and his palette is his emotional palette. And what he draws from that to make something work. And the richer that person is, the richer the portrait will be. So it's it's a question of going through the book if, I, if I'm scanning it. Most bestsellers are about 400 pages, something like that. I, I skim through it. I have to find out how it ends. I have to check and see what happens to these two or three major characters and get a sense of the author's major point of departure, what his emotional point of departure was. There's a difference between reading newspapers and narrating a book. Reading newspapers, you read facts, and that's all you're reading. In a book, exposition becomes the character. Who's saying it's a rainy day, and why, why is he saying it? That's questions that an actor asks himself when he's playing a part. So even though it says it was 2 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon when John went to the store, there's something about that has to make it special. That has to make the reader say, well, why is he going to the store? Why does he feel? Why Why am I continuing to read? The minute the reader gets ahead of me, I'm lost. I have to be ahead of the reader most of the time. Yeah. So it's it's all those questions that go into it. I don't really start to do the book until I get into the studio. I have an idea of the book. I have an idea of where it's supposed to be. I have an idea of where it's going to go. I know the basic languages, the dialects going. I know the major problem of the two characters, the three characters, and then I just go with whatever creative impulses I get. Sometimes I hit it. Sometimes I miss, and the engineer says, "Now try something else." or that's too fast, or not that voice, but uh, most of the time it speaks to me a certain way, and I, and I do that when it comes to Marcel Proust or Les Mis or, or Dostoevsky. That I had to read. I have to read that first, and go through the whole thing because it's it goes deeper than a thriller or a murder mystery,
0: and many many more characters as well. How do you choose? How do I choose? Yeah, books? how do you choose your projects? I don't. Cho-
1: I don't choose books. They come to me. Thank heaven, recorded books keeps giving me selections and random house uh, Simon Schuster Harper's luckily I'm I do series for them I do the Dan Silva series uh, Robin Cook Vince Flynn all these the uh, thrillers and uh, other venues westerns uh, there's a western by Craig Johnson called the Longmire series uh, Wyoming Sheriff which is a modern western people come to me they say could you record a book and that's kind of nice. It's great. I don't really have to push for one. No,
0: but I w- would also think you would have choices. They say, do you want to do this book? And do you ever say, well, no, <laughs> actually, I don't want to do that
1: book. Nobody nobody asks me, do I want to? In recorded books, where most of my readings are, they know by now that a lot of people expect certain things from me. And they don't really give me books with gratuitous sex or violence the sometimes that happened once in a while. I think it was a Fran Kahneman book uh, once that there was a pretty wild sex scene in it and some very bad language and uh, got a fan letter from a woman who'd always appreciated my work and said he you thinks you're the best narrator around but I was just so shocked at the filth that came out of your mouth at this book. And that's not the way it works. <laughs> so I get... A little surprise if I get a book which is less than good taste.
0: Having said that, and all due respects to recorded books, because I certainly yes. came to audiobooks through recorded books in the mm-hmm. library, um back in the day. But let's face it, there are times where the book just isn't great. Oh yeah.
1: And then Oh my god. What what do you do? Well, somebody once told me, I was a young actor I was really a soap opera at the time, and um, somebody was—he was watching me, and I thought it was just junk. It was just stupid stuff. I didn't want to do a soap, and I must have been in my twenties somewhere. And he said, "You think you're a professional?" This is another actor who was quite a good actor, and I said, well, "Yeah, I'm a professional. I get paid." He said, "You know what a professional is?" And I said, "No." He said, "A professional is someone who loves what they do, even when they don't love doing it." And that's kind of stuck to me you know, for years. It's really there. I'm doing a book now that I'm not crazy about. But there is someone out there who's going to enjoy it. Someone. You talk to that one person who's going to love it. Or you talk, you, you act or perform the best you can because there's one person who knows if you're messing around and if you're just phoning it right, in. Right,
0: exactly. That
1: person will know and that's who you have to talk to. And that's always set in my mind. It's always helped me get through some of these, uh, what I call them, tree choppers, some books that um, just chop trees down and they get sold. Listen, there's somebody out there enjoying it. I don't I'm not an arbiter of taste. I'm just a performer and I get paid to lie. How's that for a a statement? That's pretty good. Don't quote me.
0: (laughs) However, this is what interests me. As somebody who is a vociferous reader, and I have been my whole life, with audiobooks, I absolutely go for the narrator every single time. Sure. And I, I learned this when I started out. It would, I would, oh, I love this author. And the narrator, my head was exploding. It's just like, you've got to be kidding me. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. And then I learned the narrators I liked. And I'm, I'm truly not just saying this. You were absolutely one of them. Davina Porter was one of oh, them. Barbara Caruso. Yes, Davina was wonderful.
1: Davina and I share a classic book that everyone should read. We both did Frankenstein. Yes, you did. She did the introduction, and I did the monster. It was one of the best we had. I mean, I loved her doing the intro and loved the book. It's nothing like the movie, so uh, it was a wonderful piece.
0: Yeah, about- and, but but I learned it was the narrator, and, you know, yes. I've listened and enjoyed books that I never would pick up. I and, You mm-hmm. know, I wouldn't get through reading it on a page. That's right. But listening to it, there's something about that storytelling.
1: Yeah, I've always thought about that, and I, I came to the conclusion that, you know when I spoke of the emotional palette yeah. that an actor or a narrator uses, when that emotional palette sparks yours, the listener, to do the same thing, to experience the thing similarly, you, the, the narrator, and the listener are in an intimate relationship. It's an accidental intimacy, But nevertheless, it's an intimacy because you're both sharing an empathic response to the material. And that's important because if you can't share it with that that narrator, you don't want to listen to him. Whether it's Barbara Rosenblatt or Davina Porter or any of the the better narrators, there's something about that person that you feel, he's my friend. He and I agree. He and I are on the same wavelength. They reach you. Their, Their art, their artistry, their painting has reached you like you staring at the Mona Lisa or staring at a, at a painting that does something to you or listening to a piece of music that does something to you. That's the deception that art is capable of. It reaches right into you when you don't know it happened. Does your career
0: as an audiobook narrator affect the way you read for pleasure
1: now? <laughs> I have about 10 books on my desk of books that I'd like to read. But luckily, I'm when I'm reading a book, when I'm narrating a book, I'm preparing a book to narrate. So my reading is really taken up. I'm starting a new one called This Big Wonderful Thing by Stephen Harrington, which is The History of Texas. Steve Harrington is an amazing writer. He's written a book called The History of the Alamo and Remember Ben Clayton, which is one of my favorite novels. And this History of Texas is about 750 pages. But it's wonderful. It starts with the Stone Age, just past the, the Alamo now, and that's only page 200. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when an author, like Steve, puts himself into the book, it's many times it's first person, and because he, he's from Texas, he lives in Texas, and he's visited places that he's writing about. So not only do you get the history of the facts of it, you get this one person's feeling about it in the history. And that makes it a most unusual book.
0: I wonder if sometimes, like with um, Night by Elie Wiesel, I just can't imagine how difficult that must be to narrate. And I'll tell you the truth. It's a book that I read on the page, but I could not bear the
1: idea of listening to it. Yep, yep, yep. It was hard. As I said, uh, that emotional palate gets overloaded sometimes, and there are times when I had to stop. And uh, take a cup of coffee, or take a rest. I'll give you a side story of that. The young woman who was going to be my engineer for that book was a college graduate, and I asked her if she knew anything about the Holocaust, and she said, "Yes, we had a unit of it in college," and that kind of set me to thinking. A unit of it, Mm -hmm." Mm. I said. Well, this book is about, and I gave her a short line. She said, "Okay," and she couldn't get through the first say hundred pages. She had to stop. Because she was crying and she couldn't see the copy. We had to get someone else to do it. And it, But it, you know, there's a perfect example of truth coming into your truth. And when you connect, you can't help but feel what I'm feeling. If you don't feel what I'm feeling, I'm not doing my good job. And many people have written to me about that. And it just warms my heart. They still write to me about that book. It's an amazing, amazing piece of humanity.
0: Well, on a very different note... Another amazing book you narrated, which is much more fantastical, is Neil Gaiman's <laughs> American
1: Gods. American, American God I love that book.
0: You know, it's interesting because American Gods has been redone in a multicast production. And I like
1: multicast productions,
0: but I really liked your rendition much better.
1: Thank you so much. <laughs> I love doing it. I was I was I thought it was rather well done myself. I liked it, I enjoyed it, and there are lots of people that wrote to me saying how much they enjoyed it, too. I loved the book, I loved the whole idea of it. And he came to the studio and was quite impressed with it, and, and I think that was his first introduction into the audiobook world. He was really crazy about it. Shadow glanced down at it. The head was face up. I must have fumbled the toss he said, puzzled. You do yourself a disservice, said Wednesday, and he grinned. I'm just a lucky, lucky guy. Then he looked up. Well, I never. Mad Sweeney, will you have a drink with us? Southern Comfort and Coke, straight up, said a voice from behind Shadow. I'll go and talk to the barman, said Wednesday. He stood up and began to make his way toward the bar. Aren't you going to ask what I'm drinking? called Shadow. You it what happens... When authors listen to their books, depending on the narrators, the best thing that a playwright could say to me in a play or an author now in, in a book is that, "My God, when I, I I never thought it could be done that way. I never heard it in my head that way." Or, with Steve Harrington, said, "I listened to, remember Ben Clayton, and it was if I'm reading it for the first time, and wow, what a thing that does for my ego. It's a, I was there, and and a book that was about so many things, uh, and the author can say that. I'm for that. I like that.
0: Do you try to contact authors before you narrate? Not usually.
1: Not usually. Some I do. Some I've interviewed, on some of the books. Craig Johnson is one I love talking to. He does the Longmire series. Oh, Cold Dish, uh, and that whole series. He's just wonderful. He is. He's by the way, a Tony Hillerman protege. What's wonderful about it is that the series change. He changes, as with each book. There's a little other piece of him grows. He falls in love. He meets this woman. His daughter becomes a lawyer. All things happen in each successive serial. Here's an excerpt of George reading the latest in Craig Johnson's Longmire series. It's called The Land of Wolves. At the mention of our Basque deputy, Santiago Sanzarvitoria, Vic smiled. He's taking his orders very seriously. I started to lift the cup to my lips, then stopped. Whose orders? I am not at liberty to say at this time. My daughter. Pretty much. I sipped my coffee, a slight huff building. If she's so worried about me, why doesn't she come up here and see about me for herself? Um, because she has a life and a career in Cheyenne? She studied the side of my face. she's been through a lot. Walt. I nodded. yep. it's wonderful to read, and it's great to be able to do because it has great characters, and it's the characters in a book that give me joy because it's those are the different colors that go on the canvas. Do you
0: listen? Do you have the time to listen to audiobooks?
1: I can't stand listening <laughs> Okay.
0: <laughs> Tell I me can't why. Stand. <laughs>
1: The worst of it is is to listen to myself. My God, they let me get away with such things. I say, oh, God, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, and when we're in a car, my wife and I do it. It takes me a good 45 minutes to get the steam out, to, to know, okay, she needs to listen to it, let her listen to it. I just can't stand it. There's the other narrators. I tell you the truth, there there's so few narrators that I really can appreciate. It's just because I'm an older guy, and there are some that I, that I respect, but a lot of narrators really don't know what they're missing. They have nice voices and they have nice attacks, but they're skimming on the surface. That's my take on it. But that's why it's hard for me to listen to because I've become very critical. I'm most critical with myself, but i become very critical when I'm hearing somebody else do it.
0: I wonder, George, if if that could also have something to do with the fact that many narrators now are doing it on their own, like at a home studio, and sending files in so they're not working with a director and somebody they can have a back and forth with.
1: That's a big thing for me. I don't, I would, I refuse to do that. I don't think you get the best work. You do get good work. There are some good narrators that are doing it. I'm sure they Yeah, are.
0: no, I know there are too, but... but...
1: A third eye is very important. You, know, you need another ear, you need another person right there saying oh, that, try something else or because when you're when you're reading a book and you're into it it's like you're on a sled going down a hill you don't have the time to look at the bushes on the side because you're looking ahead so it, you you may miss one or two things in terms of colors in terms of nuances and sometimes the engineer will stop and say you know this and this just happened or maybe try hitting that word for it or something and that's what I thrive on. I love when an engineer's out there telling me, you know, watching me.
0: I know it's not news to you that you are somebody that audiophile has named a golden voice. I think they've done such a good job about naming really, really good narrators.
1: Oh, they are. Listen, Robin Whitten is an amazing champion woman. She's an incredible editor. Because when I started, it was a two-page mimeographed piece of paper, audiophile. And she's developed it by herself. She's worked hard on it. And it's become the, the trade magazine. But her focus on it is so amazingly right on. And the people she has working with her are wonderful. Also, they've done major things for the profession, for the industry. So I'm sure
0: being named a golden voice by audiophile magazine has resonance for you.
1: Yeah. Every time my wife tells me to shut up, I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm the golden voice here. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it, it's it's being nice called the golden voice. I appreciate that. But it's the people that write to me and send me emails. And my God, I, I get about 10 to 30 emails a week on people saying how grateful they are for what I do. And that's a blessing. I tell you, that's a, a blessing. Every day I'm I wake up and I say, God, I'm glad I'm doing this. No matter how bad the book is, I'm trying my best to make it work, and um, that's what I do. and They and they write to me. There are people who write to me who, not only blind or or sick or ill, but people saying how how impressed they are. I just got a letter today from England, saying how how he loves this uh, Walt Longmire series, and he's in England somewhere. That's marvelous. That's that uh, beats anything I've done in the theater. I mean, I've gotten Obie Awards and I've been on Broadway. Those are nice things, but uh, these people who listen to me, listen to me all the time. They're always there. And what I say to them when they write me, often I say, look, the fact that you write me, you know, it swelled my head and and I love that you did it, but I must tell you that you now end up in the booth with me because I know you're there and I talk to you. And, you know, I don't lose you.
0: Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. George, thank you so much. Thank you. It really is just such a pleasure talking to you about that great art of storytelling.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it being here.
0: That's Golden Voice George Guidel. You can find reviews of many of George's books and hundreds of others at audiophilemagazine.com. This has been an extended edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. We post a four-minute daily show with our suggestions for great audiobook listening. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.